Our Father, we come to you expectant this morning because we know that you're a God who loves to speak. Because you've made us people who can relate to you and relate to one another. And so we pray that you would open our ears, that we might hear your words, your living words. And we pray that we wouldn't be simply hearers and so deceive ourselves, but that we might do what it says. In your name and by the help of your spirit and for the glory of your son. Amen. Well, this year's Christmas John Lewis advert, highlighted, of course, with the man on the moon all alone being given a telescope. Not quite sure why. You can see what he's missing out on, realise how alone he is. But it's, it's well documented that our society is a, a society of loneliness, and, and sadly, increasingly so. There's the irony that geography and distance is becoming less of an issue despite being thousands of miles apart. We can message each other and and see each other and talk to each other. We can use Skype and FaceTime. There's social media and we can share our happy smiley photos or give the cry for help or share the interesting article that we think you might benefit from. There's a sort of level of intimacy and relationship and connection, but, but in a sense, it's very easily not real. It's in fact almost as you... As you post your reel of best bits, the perpetual airbrush Christmas letter of your highlights of what's going on in your life, I can feel like I'm covered in grey dots and feel a bit less able to relate to you and and vice versa. We can almost feel more lonely despite the increased connection and there's families not living as close anymore. People move away. There's not the extended care that there used to be within a wider family network. More and more people choosing to leave relationships and kids to later, till after the career's sorted. Or even just choosing to live on your own, because, well, relationships are hard. People get in the way of what I want. And so studies have shown that society is increasingly individualistic and fragmented and lonely. It's still on iPlayer now. There was a TV programme on BBC just 10 days ago. Um, called The Age of Loneliness. I don't know if any of you saw it. In lots of ways, it was, it was a beautiful program. It was done very well, I thought, sensitively, thoughtfully charting the lives of, of different people who felt lonely. But the thing that was really scary, what I was really struck by, was just the breadth of people whom we walked with. Loneliness growing across the generations, transecting communities. So there was 19-year-old Isabella, first-year student at university who would go for days on end without leaving her room. There was 30-something Kylie, driven businesswoman based in London, but felt isolated by herself. There was Richard, who was 72, recently bereaved, coming to terms with, with living as a single man again after so many years. There was Emily, who was a lonely new mum, congregating with other new mums in the supermarket, coming to terms with the lack of adult conversation. Some of you will associate with that. There was Olive, who was 100, still active, still going out, but sort of slightly sidelined, not wanting to be a burden, not wanting to impose upon her family, and just, yeah, it's sad. I'd recommend it if, if you have an hour to spare. It's still an iPlayer. 
Because one of the things that the Bible says is that part of being human means that we relate. We were made for each other. We are social beings. We're made for community. We're made to care for one another. I care for you and you care for me. And this increasing fragmentation and isolation and loneliness is, is not doing us good. Society is not thriving. Taking a step back, it's actually something of an irony of what it means to be human. If you've been here and listened in in previous weeks, we, we've said that part of our Judeo-Christian heritage means there's a, a dignity for the individual, regardless of status, regardless of rank, regardless of performance. Humans have worth as individuals, we've said, but the problem is that emphasis on self, of course, gets blown out of all proportion, and, and the worth of the individual, we become individualistic. We isolate ourselves. We think we're islands. We think we don't need anyone else. One person says this, by absolutizing the individual, it turns into a philosophy of individualism, namely the dogma that I can be myself without my neighbor. Did you see the danger of that focus on being individuals? We turn ourselves into islands. We build walls around ourselves. And yet what it means to be human is that we, we need both. You have the individual value and worth and dignity, and yet you need one another as well for society to function well, whatever the cost. It's not just survival of the fittest. If I can put it very bluntly, it's good to be a burden. Isn't that striking? It's good to be a burden because we're not meant to go it alone. We were meant to care for others and we were meant to be cared for by others. That's part of what it means to be human. And it's striking. If you, if you track it back into history, you see that it has been Christians along the way who have been at the forefront of caring in society, of, of even transforming society, bringing care and cohesion to a broken and fragmented world. Christians who are prepared to look after people who nobody else was because of their inherent worth, because of the one in whose image they were created. Let me just give you a couple of examples. The first one is from um, uh, second century and early church father Justin Martin sketched Christian love this way. He said this, he said, we who, would, who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else, now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies you see how Christ transforms people and how we relate to one another? And the love of these early Christians was not just restricted to simply loving Christians. It wasn't just an in-the-church-walls type thing, but rather doing good to all. There was a very famous example from about AD 250 when they think it was probably smallpox that, that spread across the ancient world, a devastating plague. It's become known as the Plague of Cyprian, named after the Bishop of Carthage, a Bishop Cyprian of the time, and he, he speaks of how Christians undertook to care 
for those whom nobody else was caring for. It was an unbelievable, incredible um, medical feat, logistical nightmare, enormous cost. And the history books say it was, it was the Christians who were the ones caring for the sick, doing so at their own risk, doing so at risk of contracting the plague for themselves. The rest of society were throwing family members into the streets before they died to protect themselves. But it was the Christians who were caring. And the amazing thing was that this, this dignity and worth that Christians bestowed on others began to change the society they were living in. Particularly as the helpless or the lower social classes were, were given an inherent worth and they were valued. It especially came after the Christian faith was legalized under Constantine 313, but then later it becomes the adopted religion in Rome in 380. So have a listen to this from Roberta Green Armanson. We quoted from her in the first week. If people want the article that I mentioned, then do come and shout at me and I will send you a link or I'll get you a copy. But I just want to read a little bit again from this article as she speaks of how the West has got to where it is and why the Christian faith is such good news for us here where we are now. I'll read the first bit and then I will click on the PowerPoint for the last bit um, because there's quite a lot to say. But she's focusing particularly on how slaves were treated and how the rights of slaves were transformed because they were seen as having dignity. It's a bit fruity, so forgive me. She says this, The Romans were clear that for men, sexual relations outside marriage were the norm, that the mother of the family, the mater familias, was to be chaste and faithful, a loyal wife, a loving mother, but the father, the pater familias, however, was not held to such a high standard. It was expected he would engage in sexual relationships beyond his marriage bed, those extramarital relationships were almost always with men and women who were slaves. These partners were mere objects for use, commanded to perform. Into this established social order, Christianity came. It not only preached a resounding rejection of these sexual norms, it also championed a human dignity in a new way. The gospel proclaimed that every human being has inestimable worth and value because every human being is created in the image of God. Human beings have an eternal destiny, and therefore not to be treated as objects. And she continues, imagine what this meant to the slave woman or man who had been forced to submit his or her body to a master, to those who did not have a voice. Christianity said that is most assuredly not who you are. She continues, it took 200 years for this understanding of human dignity to permeate the culture, but by the 6th century, the Christian idea of faithful marriage between a man and a woman became the social norm. Celibacy and virginity were valued as ways for men and women to leave the objectification and enslavement of their bodies behind and celebrate those bodies in fruitful work for the world. Thus were laid the foundations for the Christian concept of human dignity that was embraced by the West into the 20th century. You see, something of how the individual value and worth of people changes a society for the good. 
There's this tension between the importance of self, of individuals, of being created in God's image, of this individual dignity, and yet the fact that we're relational. We're made to care. We're made to value people. We're made to be a support and a community for others, and they for us. And you see, here's the thing. The Bible says that that is because of the Trinitarian God in whose image we are created. You see, just as God is plural and yet united, just, because he, just as he is three and one, just because he is loving and, and relational and always others-centered, just as God at the core of who he is, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, while so humanity was made in that pattern, relational, made to love, made to serve, One writer says this, God in himself, God in eternity, God from all eternity is a mutually indwelling, loving community. So the message of the Bible is that part of what it means to be human is to be in community, to be together. And when we don't, well, in some senses, we're being less than human. As we isolate ourselves from others... As there's fragmentation and isolation and all the kind of things that we're seeing, while so we are less than the people we were made to be. Another writer says this, when marriages and parenthood are deficient in love and its generous self-expression and self-giving, and when our old and sick and handicapped, poor or disadvantaged are ignored and unhelped, then the life of the triune God is not reflected in our humanity as it should be then personhood itself is wounded and reduced. Where recognition of others, where kindness, gratitude and care are lacking, the person who has left these behind, however successful in other respects, has shrunk, not grown, in terms of their true personhood. They are diminished, not greatened in their self-sufficiency. Which means, of course, that, that for the people of God... For the new community that God is transforming and creating for his body, the church, we ought to be very different from what we see in society. So if you've lost it, please do flick open 1 Corinthians 12 with me. And after that extended introduction, let's get into the text and we'll see something of what God is doing in his work of recreation in his body. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 4 through to 31. And we'll see in the first point, verse 4 to 13, that ours is a God of unity and diversity. Have a look down at those first few verses and see, see something of the foundation of why we're, we were created for relationships, why we were made for community. Zoom in on verse 4 to 6. Let me read them again for us. Paul writes this to the church in Corinth. He says, There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. You see what he's saying? He's saying the true church, a Spirit-filled church, is a community A community in which there is unity and diversity and diversity and unity. And there is one spirit, verse 4. 
There is one Lord, verse 5. That's the Lord Jesus. There is one God, verse 6. He's, he's clearly talking about the Trinity. The Trinity is at the foundation of unity and diversity that we see in the church. It's the same Spirit who gives gifts to each of us. We, we serve the same Lord Jesus and the same God works in us. But we're not clones. There's one Spirit, but he gives different types of gifts. You see, there's one Lord, but there are different ways of serving him. There is one God, but he works in us in different ways. There's unity and there's difference. So as you look around and see something of our glorious difference as Maudlam Road Church, that is foundationally derived from the Trinitarian God. Diversity of gifts, yet unity of purpose. So verse 7, to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. Which means that you are unique and that is okay. Your unique gifts come from God, but therefore everyone else. For, for the body to function as it was designed to function, we need you and your gifts and the way that God has made you. It's, it's not a private you and God thing. It's an everybody, us and God thing. I'd love to urge you to do that. To use the gifts that God has given you for the good of everyone else. To urge you to be here as often as possible. To, to be here and to use those gifts that he's given you. And there are always things that he's doing. There are always rotors to fill and slots and all that kind of stuff. If we've got a possible treasurer, I know Martin would love to talk to you, but... But more than that, we can easily slip into kind of roles and projects and stuff. But more than that, may I urge you, please, to, to use the gifts that you have, just perhaps quietly with individuals, quietly investing in others, maybe deliberately grabbing a younger Christian and, think you fancy just meeting up once a week and reading the Bible together and praying with each other and maybe we could read a book together and challenge each other or... Not so much the kind of filling rotors and doing tasks and that kind of stuff, but actually just the, the way that relationally God uses us for the good of one another. I know a number of those things happen each week, and it's a huge encouragement. The challenge as well for us as leaders, if I'm honest, is that for us as a church and for us as a church that wants to plant churches, is that the Lord has given us these gifts as a body, but the danger is we're so constrained by the kind of programs that we have or the ideas, the plans, that we can squish people who don't quite fit into our sort of idea of how things might go. I can think of times in the past when someone's come and said to me, I think I'm gifted in this thing. I'm not really sure I help them. Because currently we don't have that thing kind of going on at the moment. I'm not sure I did a great job of helping them use and develop that gift that God gave them for the good of the rest of us. But we have these sort of constraints and ideas of what ought to be happening. So pray for us as leaders as we seek to see what God might be doing through the gifts that he provides and the people that he provides and the opportunities that there are. And so the diverse gifts that 
our diverse God gives are for the good of the rest of the body. And then Paul lifts a whole bunch of them, verse 7 to 11. I think they're particularly Corinth things, things going on there. The relevant context of what was happening in Corinth as you read through 12 and 13 and 14. But you see, if that's the pattern that we see in church, if there's the diverse God who, who gives diverse gifts to his body, and that is how we flourish, I think that's not just a church thing, that's how the world ought to work. That's why he's done it as he's done it. And we as the church are being recreated in his image so it should be particularly seen in us. But the live issue is that we bring these ideas, this fragmentation and isolation from our week-by-week stuff, and we bring it into church with us, and it affects how we relate to one another. And so we might say, well, I'm, I'm not really needed. They, they don't actually need me. I don't feel I quite fit in, verse 14 to 20. Let me read it through. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. You see what he's saying? He's, there's not an opt-out clause, because you're different. It might be you look around the place and, and you feel out of place, but we're not off the hook. It's striking, isn't it? We might be, verse 13, Jew or Gentile, slave or free, We might be feet saying I'm not a hand or ears saying I'm not an eye. We might think everyone else fits in and is a bit more useful. But we're not off the hook. Because God has created us as a community for a deliberate reason. I think what was happening in Corinth, as the section develops, you see it, that there were people who presumably didn't have the trendy gift of the day. They didn't quite fit the mould of, th- of what the church thought they should be. And so they thought, well, maybe the church is better off without me. I don't really know where I fit in. I feel like a bit of a spare part. And Paul says, no, we're a body. Corinth, you've been made that way for a reason. We're meant to be diverse. We, we need you. Magdalene Road, we're a body. We're meant to be diverse. We need you. Even if you look around the place and you feel, oh, I'm not quite sure what I'm doing here. Or where I fit in. I take it that truth should really begin to deal with feelings of inadequacy that we might have. Or feelings of envy as we look at them and think, well, if I had their gift, then I'd be okay. Now, I'm convinced God gives his church the right people and the right gifts to fulfill the tasks that he calls us to. And there are people in this room like this, but I thought I wouldn't embarrass them. So let me tell you about a lovely lady I met last year um, in America, a lady called Celia. She's just reached 70. Her life really has been 
a life of being a PA, an administrator for, for one of the pastors at this church that I was visiting. She worked very, very closely with him for most of his ministry, a lot of responsibility. She's incredibly gifted, incredibly humble. She's loved that role because she's not wanted to, to be up front. She's wanted to be behind the scenes. She's not wanted a, a name for herself or to be visible. She's just wanted to quietly release somebody else. She's a great organizer, a great facilitator, a great diary manager, all this kind of stuff. She's never wanted to be a front of house person. She told me that very clearly, but she has had a lifetime of encouragement and fruit because she's seen the ministry of, of another, the ministry of a church flourish. In a sense, she's been a happy, anonymous Christian, serving hard, using the gifts that she's been given, but taking very little recognition, just getting on with it quietly. Maybe your question then is, well, where do I fit in? Because I look around and I don't quite feel like I belong here. I guess the thing to do is to chat to a friend, to, to maybe talk about it in home group, maybe pray about it this week, if, if that's how you feel. If you're not quite sure where you fit in, then, then chat to people that know you and love you. Come and grab me afterwards. I'll see if I can start things off. But I have every confidence that God arranges his body as he wishes. So that every part is needed, not, not some parts or not most parts or, or many parts, but actually every part. We need you. And so if you look down at 14 to 20, and they're the kind of the less impressive gifts, if you like. They're the people feeling left out and unneeded and spare parts. And in 21 to 26, I think we get the so-called sort of more impressive gifts, feeling superior and arrogant and looking down their noses at others. And so Paul says to people like that, Well, verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. It shows my age, but if you remember a film about a boy, it's based on a book by Nick Hornby. It's largely a, a story of one man realising that he needs other people. He is the kind of guy who says, but I don't need them at the start of the film. Do you remember Hugh Grant? Uh, Will Freeman was his character. The film starts off like this. It says, In my opinion, all men are islands, and what's more, now's the time to be one. This is an island age. A hundred years ago, for instance, you had to depend on other people. No one had TVs or CDs or DVDs or videos. What's a video? Or home espresso maker. As a matter of fact, they didn't have anything cool. 
Whereas now, you see, you can make yourself a little island paradise with the right supplies and, more importantly, the right attitude. You can be sun-drenched, tropical. And I like to think that perhaps I'm that kind of island. I like to think I'm pretty cool. I like to think I'm Ibiza. That's the way the film starts, but as it progresses, as it progresses, he realizes it's not true. He needs others to thrive. He, he even thrives as he helps others and pours himself into them. It's a film about the nature of humanity, of being a relational people, a community, and it ends. Do you remember the You've seen it, the, the Christmas Day scene, this eclectic group of disparate people forming a community together where they're needed, where they're a part, and where they have an identity. He thought he didn't need them, but he realized he did. He thought he was above community, but he was wrong. And it's very countercultural then. The picture that Paul gives as he speaks to this church is is expanding on the body metaphor. And it's probably him talking about our unmentionables. Let the reader understand. In, in a sense, those parts that are weaker and honorable and unpresentable, the parts that we keep covered up. But Paul says they are indispensable. You treat them with special honor and modesty. It's very countercultural. It means that the church ought to be the kind of place where people and gifts are valued, whoever they are. Even the people who don't quite fit in or feel like they've got much to offer. Even the people that the rest of society will sideline and not be quite sure what to do with. Even the people who have the sorts of gifts that we don't normally admire, we are to especially honour them. It's very countercultural. It's very different from the rest of our lives. And the reality is different churches and different conferences and networks and streams and all this kind of stuff will have different people or groups or gifts that will be particularly elevated and regarded and seen as the thing to be or the people to be around, seen as especially worthy and especially desirable. And so therefore there are different people and groups and gifts who are looked down upon by others and sidelined, disregarded. But Paul says in the body of Christ, we need them all. All the gifts are needed. Even the kind of unpresentables and the unmentionables. We need each other. We particularly, particularly honour them. Everyone is vital. We're not to be a church that says, well, I don't think we really need them, actually. We can easily do without them. It's why it's always so painful if people leave on or move on or head to other churches or head to other cities. It means that we don't just come to consume, but we come to be a part of what's going on, whoever we are. We need people. And it's easy to say that, isn't it? Community is nice in theory, but it's much harder when you actually meet real people because I'm a bit weird and I annoy you and you're a bit weird and you annoy me and we bring our sin and our quirks and our awkwardness and our, and our baggage to the table and 
But everyone is vital. That is the extraordinary thing about this passage. Just as God is is diverse and yet unified, so as a church body we are to be diverse and yet unified. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One of my favourite times in the week, apart from being slightly stressed with the PowerPoint, is to come early to church. Maybe to arrive at about 10 o'clock. Do you know, you can get here before half 10. It's extraordinary. Anyway, um, maybe 10.45. Um, But if you come at about 10 or about 9.45 and see different people serving in different ways... It's a really lovely picture that there's the host team. They are setting out chairs. They are putting Bibles on your chairs. They are sorting out flyers and tables and PowerPoint and screen. And there's a PA getting sorted and sound checks and stuff going on and wires everywhere and why is it making that noise? And there's a music team who are preparing and practicing and getting ready to, to serve us so that we can worship God. There are people here to sort of welcome and sort out the tea and coffee and biscuits over there. Or maybe it's as we're meeting here, you're thinking of the 50 or so who are in there and in here on junior church teams, teaching the next generation down. Or there's Elizabeth and her incredible team and and many others who have prepared lunch for today so that we can head up in a moment to the church hall and sit around tables and get to know each other and be a body together. And then there's a washing up afterwards, or, or it's through the week. I've said before, one of the privileges we have as, or I have as a pastor is to hear stuff that's going on, to hear how people are being looked after, to think of the different people involved in home groups, whether they're leading Bible studies or hosting or, or just caring for people, or folk who come on Tuesdays and Thursdays to sunflowers and buttercups and to sort out the building and to clean it, and a practical love as people take sick folk to hospital or give lifts to the doctors. Or maybe it's the new parents or those finding life hard or with ill health and people providing meals to make life a bit easier. And to see the body kind of work. And it's such a privilege. I don't think we're perfect, but I think the Lord is at work. Often we say that we, we want to be not a a restaurant, but a family meal. We don't just kind of come and sit down and consume and pay our money and leave, but we're, we're in it together, rolling up sleeves, giving it a go, getting stuck in, whatever our gifts, people serving one another. I'm thinking about it this week. It feels quite normal. It feels quite normal, but, but the reality is we're not normal for all kinds of reasons, but particularly, we're not normal because of the way that we work as a body together. It's what we were made for. It's incredibly countercultural. It's the kind of conversation I have frequently with folk who wouldn't call themselves Christians. And actually, if you look back at church history, it's the comments that have always gone. As people say, why do Christians love like that? Why do Christians serve those whom nobody else cares for? Why is there so much love within the body of Christ? Why are they prepared to love in a costly way? It's not normal in our society. It makes people stop and listen. 
Why do Christians do it? Well, it's because we were made to be relational. Because we were made for community. We were made to be social, loving, caring beings. We, we care for each other and people care for us. And why do we do that? Because he is a God who loves. He is a God who is diverse. And we are a people made in his image. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for any here who feel like they don't fit in. Who aren't quite sure of perhaps the gifts that you've given them or the role that they play in the body or quite what it's all about. Long, Father, that you would open their eyes to the glory of your plan in the local church and that you would equip and empower each of us to to use the gifts that you've given for the good of everybody else. Pray for those, perhaps, who, who feel superior. Pray that we would know that you are the God who gives gifts and you give them for the sake of your people, the sake of your body. Thank you that in you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we see unity and diversity. We long to increasingly reflect that. Guard us, please, from the fragmentation and isolation and loneliness of our modern world. Might we be a people who love, who love one another, but simply who love people and are prepared to care. In Jesus' name, amen.